wheel. Let us continue tonight. Still, we are in the flow for more than 10 weeks now. We have been analyzing the words and actions of Jesus as described in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, my purpose in doing this is to try to convey to you from a yogic standpoint what is happening. What's the story of the chakras? What's the story of the yoga practices? What's the story of the levels of consciousness? Which are the cosmic principles outlined? And of course, the major reason is that any way you take it, Jesus is a great, great teacher. So if we are interested to learn some things from Swami Shivananda, if we are interested something to learn something from Paramahamsa Yogananda, of course we are also interested to learn something from Jesus, even though it's an indirect way. Jesus has not been a guru of yoga teaching in the language of yoga. There are all these allegations that he has passed through India, that he lived for a time in India. We don't know if it's true and it doesn't matter really for the mission for what he did. What matters is the fact that his wisdom being universal wisdom, his wisdom referring to the whole planet, his wisdom referring to the human being, to the fate of the human being, then automatically what he says must be valid in the world of yoga as well, and it must be valid always in the world of practical spirituality. And that's the purpose of these comments, to try to draw some parallels to understand it with the mind of a yogi and understand it with the mind of the yogi trying to see like, okay, so practically, what does it mean? What should be done? We have seen a lot of these things. If you follow the previous satsang, uh, there have been such, so many other things. And we have analyzed last week, last time, the story of the so-called sinful woman, which uh, the history of the church alleges as no 100% demonstration, but the history of the Christian church alleges that this sinful woman was one and the same with Mary Magdalene. It was actually that this story is about Mary Magdalene. But uh, some gospels and some of this literature doesn't mention clearly who she was, it's a general case, and we have seen all the pros and cons. One of the very important things is that you see very clearly, once again, that Jesus is not so much irked by the concrete sins. The word sin is very much rejected by some people today because they are thought to be arrogant and egocentric, and if somebody tells you, you have done a sin, it's like, no, I'm not a sinner. I refuse to think myself as about a sinner. There is no sin and bullshit like this, which is, of course, not true. It's just a way of the ego to defend itself, in which you do shitty things and you say, don't tell me that I have done something shitty. It's not true. You are projecting it. It's your way of thinking. People simply like this sooth saying where they live a shitty life and then they want to say that it, everything was okay and everything is going to be okay. And none of those two statements is true. And uh, therefore, 
even if we don't call it sin, we know that in the Buddha's understanding, a sin is nothing else than the fact that you create some negative karma. You cut a tree, maybe you create a negative karma by cutting a tree. You kill a chicken to roast it and eat it, maybe you create a negative karma. I'm saying maybe because different people have different referential systems, and I'm not going now to go there and analyze that. This is a complete parenthesis, what I'm doing here. And therefore, it's no time to argue about that, but uh, this story with the sin and so on, it's ultimately a fact that you shoot yourself in the food. A sin is an act in which you shoot yourself in your own food and you sabotage yourself spiritually and in other ways you create disharmony, you create negative resonances, you create negative karma and eventually you are the one who is going to sigh and suffer because of those things having been done by yourself. Uh, as you know, there is a proverb which says man is man's worst enemy. So we are our own worst enemies because sometimes we get crazy and we do things and we even have the shamelessness of not caring and saying, hey, come on, you know, like it's not that bad. No, sure. So this is how anybody from Hitler to Genghis Khan must have said in their mind, come on, it's not that bad and so on. So, um, this being said, I'm just wanting to emphasize because I connect, to, I want to connect to the previous thing because then uh, Jesus continues with his action that Jesus was uh, judged, that Jesus was challenged, like why do you allow this prostitute to come around, like this is a very impure presence and so on, and Jesus actually is of the opinion that this woman is forgivable and he actually forgives her on the spot. And he says, uh, your sins are forgiven, first of all, he says, because you have loved a lot, because there has been a lot of love. And it's even unclear if he means that there has been a lot of love during her sexual activity, during her guilty sexual activity, or if there was a lot of love towards him in the last minute, when she started crying and broke down, and because the things were so intense, then forgiveness can happen. So, we see two things. He again comes to this thing and he says, your sins are forgiven, which gives goosebumps to the people around, and many people even are on the verge of doubt. Some people are beyond the verge of doubt, because they say, this guy is talking too big. Like this, this guy pretends he can forgive sins and only God can forgive sins, so they cannot accept his divine nature. They think he is a man who has gone a little bit megalomanic and he thinks too much of himself. And for other people, you know, uh, while they look at this, they are very close to the doubt, like why does this man push it there? Because Moses never said that people's sins were forgiven previous prophets in the Jewish environment. Abraham or whatever, Isaiah or Elijah or other of the major prophets, they never said that uh, people's sins are forgiven or something. They didn't take that mantle that I can also tell you your sins are forgiven. So how does Jesus do it? 
and then of course it's because Jesus is different, but that's the whole point. Can you accept that? And then we also see that Jesus, when he deals with Matthew, who was a tax collector, and when he deals with Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute, and others, he is easily lenient. Like he considers these kinds of sins easy to trespass, easy to, to surpass, easy to compensate for. But when people contradict him, he startedly starts behaving like a borderline schizophrenic, you know? Suddenly, like everything goes until you start contradicting me. Then you are on the side of the devil. Period. You know, like he's very intolerant ideologically. He's very pissed off at the Pharisees and the scribes and the people who are hypocrites and who distort the, the, the traditions, the metaphysical traditions of Judaism in that case. He's very rabid at the sins of the mind. The sins of the flesh. He considers them superficial and easy to wipe out with a sponge. It is exactly as one of my yoga teachers said, if a woman is having a lot of sex, everybody would say she's a whore. But nobody fights against egoism, you know? If somebody in your village is having too much sex, oh boy, it's a riot. But if somebody is a selfish person, ah. Uh, it's okay. Who isn't selfish? It's accepted. Although selfishness is much worse than fornication in terms of the spiritual development and the spiritual evolution of somebody. And you can see it with Jesus that somehow he always reacts pretty quickly and superficially to these things which are visible. But when the mind of somebody is distorted, then he becomes very serious. Then he is very, he can get angry, he accuses, he goes very hard when the sin is in the mind. The sins of the mind are worse. In the same way, modern holistic medicine considers that if you have a disease on your body, it's better than if you have a disease on your soul. A person with a diseased soul or mind can be like a monstrous Roman emperor, like a Caligula or a Messalina, killing millions of people in the process. Person that has a disease on the body, they suffer, it's inconvenient, but it's much better to take it out through the body than to have it go in the mind. That's the principle of suppression. For example, if, let's say, you connect with some infectious disease, and the only thing you can do is you take antibiotica. And by taking antibiotica, you prevent it from manifesting as fever, rashes on the skin, or whatever it would have done to you. And then it bounces back from your skin, and it goes back in your soul. Like you shoot a bullet in a metallic room, and it bounces off the wall and comes back. No? And therefore, when you take a suppressive medication, the disease becomes invisible and you say, oh, I stopped it. No? But you didn't stop it. It has gone into your soul and into your mind and there it produces a much more pernicious medicine. No? It's like 
there are people who, there are so many cases, and again, it doesn't sound severe because we live in this superficial world, where there are people who say, I took a vaccine, and next day, I lost my faith in God. I was incapable to believe in God, and this lasted for like nine years. Nine years, I lost my faith in God, second day after I took a vaccine. So the question is, should you have better had some smallpox or some whatever, that mumps and measles and whatever vaccine you took, wasn't it better to have the measles and to keep your soul clean? But people very seldom think like this. Only holistic doctors and therapists, they think like this, that the soul is more important than your skin. For example, homeopathic doctors are extremely happy when you get lots of rashes on your skin, boils, pimples, eruptions, because they say that's a cleansing of your soul. The miseries from your soul becomes rashes on your skin. And rashes on your skin is very ugly and uncomfortable, but if you have rashes on your soul, then you don't believe in the law of karma, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the words of Jesus, and then you go to hell. It would have been better that you had five years of rashes than to go for 5,000 years in hell. Like if you put it like this. So it's a matter of values. And you see that for Jesus, when your mental body is disturbed and you think wrong, for him that's much more severe than if you do something physically, which eventually can be quite superficial and could be corrected. Of course, Jesus himself does not advocate the major monstrosities, you know, like people killing people, and he doesn't go as far as that. So, Jesus concluded this paragraph with Mary Magdalene, allegedly, by telling to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In other Gospels, he says more to her, for example, he says to keep the oil which was left, the perfumed oil. He tells to her prophetically, he says, daughter, keep this for my funeral. Like he knows he was going to die soon, and he knows that this woman will somehow be around at that time. And indeed, Mary Magdalene is one of the three women that anointed his body when he was after he was crucified, and when they quickly had to put him in a tomb. No, and I don't know if it was really the same jar with oil or some leftovers of this oil described in this story from last week. But anyway, so this story is told in slightly different ways in other Gospels. But uh, I told you, the four Gospels are the same story told by four different people in four slightly different ways. And that doesn't spoil the story. That actually makes it better because each one of the authors insists on other aspects of this story. Here, Jesus ends by saying, your faith has saved you. Like, how did you know to come to me and cry on my feet? I guess you've softened me down. You've touched me, and I'm saying, your sins are forgiven. But if you would have gone to John the Baptist and done the same, John the Baptist wouldn't have been able to forgive your sins because John the Baptist is not Jesus. And John the Baptist would have said, I'm sorry for you. Repent. Do no more. 
Jesus simply says, okay, great love in you, I can see your sins are forgiven. Like she hit bullseye by coming to Jesus and simply crying and making this dramatic scene. And Jesus says, your intuition has been right. Your faith has saved you. I don't know who whispered in your ear that if you come to me, I can do something equally dramatic to do to you as you do to me. But actually, it was a very good intuition. So he says, your faith has saved you. You could have simply said, ah, just another weird prophet. We in Israel have been full of this crazy prophet. Some of them are not even for real. Some of them are maybe just some schizophrenics going around and speaking nonsense. How do you make the difference between a real prophet and a false prophet? <laughs> you could have stayed at home, but your faith has saved you. And that is very important for you to understand as attitude. Dude, you may be doing yoga for two years and then you are going to discover that your faith has saved you. Because you believe in your yoga practice, you believe in things and instead of sitting on the beach and drinking margaritas, you've done yoga every day for two years. Your faith has saved you. It's also an intuition. It's not only about Jesus. In the case of Jesus, everything is very black and white. Everything is very extreme because he is the extreme presence, being that he is. But this applies in all fields of life. You know? So how can you say your faith has saved you? What is your faith? Ask yourselves. What does your faith push you to do? What did your faith push you to do? in the last 30 days? How did you exert your faith? What does your faith consist of? What does it make you do? What decisions have you taken? That's very important to understand this aspect of faith, not in a mystical, bizarre way, but in a very practical, pragmatical, existential and experiential way because we believe in like if you get a cancer if tomorrow any one of you is diagnosed with cancer I'm influenced because I have seen I'm seeing this series of documentaries about the truth about cancer and all that if tomorrow you are diagnosed with cancer what's your faith will you go and do chemotherapy and surgery and radiation or not what do you believe in it's a matter of your faith I know what my faith is and I can even share it with you. I can tell you what I would do. But therefore, the question is, what would you do? If you would notice this and that in your life, like I have no courage, I have no this, I have no that, I'm, what would you do? What's your faith? What do you believe in? What's the solution? What solution are you seeking for? Remember the faith we take it in Christianity like it's a religious faith that you believe in God. But it's not that. The faith is like what they describe in the secret, that you believe you have an expensive car and in four years you will find yourself driving exactly that car because you believe that it's yours. It's a sort of self-suggestion from Ajna Chakra. It's a self-hypnosis that you believe. People who are under hypnosis, you can give them an apple and tell them that it's an onion. And when they bite of it and they start eating it, they start shedding tears. 
There is nothing in the apple which can produce tears when you eat it. But the mind can produce tears in the eyes because the mind believes it's an onion. So the belief, many people all the time I have to mention this because some people believe that belief is a strictly religious word, faith, and some people think that belief is a strictly materialistic word, like you should believe that you have a house with a swimming pool and you shall have it. And that's the materialistic application of it. But actually this belief or faith is a global phenomenon which belongs to Ajna Chakra because we believe all sorts of things, our suggestion, self-suggestion, self-hypnosis and everything conditions us completely. How many times you haven't heard that some people didn't eat for a few days and then they died? And then you hear, no, in, there is a place in Siberia where Russian doctors still do fasting therapy near the Lake Baikal, some place there. No, there are people who in one year they fasted more than 110 days. Like out of 360 days, more than 110 days did not eat. In one year alone, nothing, not even a thread of grass, nothing, just water, drinking water, black fast, fast with water, that's all. So, is it a matter of belief? There are people who don't eat for 40 days and they feel more and more pure, better and better. And some people say, I haven't eaten for seven days, soon I'll die. It's all in your head. If you think that you die after seven days of not eating, you will. It's as simple as that. You can make yourself die because it's a belief which is very deep. So these deep beliefs can be challenged. And of course, the greatest belief, as I told you, God came to earth, an avatar, not once, many times, because Krishna was God and Brahma was God. Again, Jesus is not a singular phenomenon in the history of mankind. It's a singular phenomenon just for Christians, because they can see only this much from the history of the earth. But in India, Jesus is not a singular phenomenon. So Jesus, God came to earth, confirmed the human existence in Kali Yuga, and sacrificed himself for me and you, and gave us the possibility of spiritual resurrection and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's a great belief. Congratulations if you believe that. Because that's an empowering belief. But some people say, Swamiji, I can't believe that. Well, you've got a bad karma. That's the problem. You've got a bad karma and it fucks your mind so badly that you can't believe something which would help you and which would save you. As simple as that. So belief is something that we have to work, we have to regulate our beliefs, not to be victims. Uh, I cannot believe that I will ever be rich. Then all these people who practice richness, all these richness manuals in the world, the secret and a hundred and thousand other booklets written about how to get rich, the rich mentality and the mindset of it, they would say you are a loser. You're lost. You'll never be rich because you sit there in a corner and say, I don't know. I don't know. I can never make myself believe that I'm actually rich. Loser. Yeah, you'll never be because you can't believe. And all these books say you can. You can. Stand up. Put a chili up your ass. 
Slap, clap yourself in front of the mirror. Beat the shit out of yourself. Make an effort and stand up and believe, please. Please believe. Now, what about the same thing applied in religious terminology, you know? I can't believe that, you know? Then beat yourself until you believe, you know? Do something. Make a heroic effort and try to believe. Open your Ajna Chakra. Clean your Ajna Chakra. Solarize your Ajna Chakra from a yoga yogic standpoint so you can choose a correct set of beliefs. That's what we're talking about. So Jesus is very profound when he says, and not only to Mary Magdalene or who this woman was, when he says your faith has saved you. Because your faith saves you. When I was young, my father was asking me, why don't I make babies? Why don't I want to have children? And when I was getting older and he realized it's not going to happen, then he got desperate and he said, he came to me often, obsessively, and he said, you know, a man's true survival is only through his children. That's a materialistic belief. That's all he could believe. He could believe that you are made of flesh and you are just a perishable mixture of DNA and the only thing by which you can become immortal if you make a successful, beautiful child and that child will be 10% better than you have been in your life, a bit smarter, a bit richer, a bit, you know, and uh, then the parents can show their belly button, like Manipura thing, and say, haha, see, my child is great. It's nonsense, yeah? That's not the immortality of Shakespeare. You know something about the children of Shakespeare? Do you know anything about the children of Socrates or of Albert Einstein or of Mahatma Gandhi or of Jesus? Is any one of them making their parents proud? Does, Al does Albert Einstein survive because his children are wonderful? Actually, when Mahatma Gandhi died, he had three children and only one came to his funeral. Two children didn't even attend his funeral. So, the, if you believe that you are becoming immortal, that you are surviving through your progeny, you are in for a big surprise. In a hundred years, you'll discover that it was a very pathetic belief to have that somehow you survive because you have genetical offspring. That's not. Of course, you can have genetical offspring, but that doesn't mean that that is your testament to humanity or Again, in some major cases it can be. The mother of Jesus became enlightened because she gave birth to Jesus. The mother of Buddha became enlightened because she gave birth to Buddha. Well, like how many times did that happen in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 centuries? How many times did that happen? It happens once every 1,000 years or something like this. Maybe if we are generous and we add there Milarepa and Yogananda and the likes of them, maybe we can say it happens once every 50 years. Once every 50 years in 7 billion people, you know, people who win the lottery, El Gordo or the Super Bowl in America or something, they are much, 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 much more than one in a 50 years. If people would win the lottery just one person in 50 years on the whole planet, you would say, come on, man, this is bullshit. And it's like it's, the chance is astronomically small. Exactly in the same way. So you cannot rely on the fact that
that you will be so perfect that you will give birth to the next Jesus and then genetically somehow you have produced a wonder. No. That's why, no, people do not become immortal through their children. People become immortal through their own sadhana, through their own spiritual practice, like Buddha. Do you know anything about the child of Buddha? What was his name? I mean, of course, the Buddhists probably know because it's part of their history. But really, as an outsider, you know the child of Buddha, what he did. Did he become a Buddhist like his father? Did he follow in his footsteps? Was he just a spoiled king? What happened? What was his name? No, we don't know. Buddha became immortal because he practiced the path to nirvana, not because he had a smart child or something like that. Your faith is very important. What do you believe in? That's very, very important because that's what saves you. And then the story continues. After this, Jesus traveled on about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus was like, it's an interesting link. What did Jesus do during those three years and a half while he stepped in his mission from the age of 30 till the age of 33 and a little bit when he finished it? He was in a geographically relatively small part of the world, in Judea, Samaria, Galilea, you know, like parts of the Palestinian part of the earth, today most of it in the state of Israel. He was going around and occasionally he got provoked into some big deed. And in between those, there have been thousands of, more than a thousand days, and not every day he was doing something big. And that's why from time to time they were just like normal days. And in those days he was walking from one village to another and talking. He was just a public speaker. He was going to the next village and telling, proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom of God. It almost sounds like the Jehovah's Witnesses. No? It sounds like really boring and really weird and so on. Only that with Jesus, the thing is that he was the real deal. He was actually coming in an authorized way and telling them that something is about to change. That something which is about to change as we go through the story and the meanings of it is very big. People say, but Swamiji, what did the people from Tibet got out of this? Well, what did they get out of this? You know, it's like they heard about Jesus minimum six, seven, eight centuries later, if not 11, 12 centuries later, when the first missionaries probably crossed on foot Tibet or something like So the Tibetans in the first century after Christ, what moved for them? How did they get something out of this whole story? Jesus was coming around and preaching, giving good news about the kingdom of God. That the fate of man has been changed. That God is making a new covenant with the human beings. Remember, God made covenants. If you would know the story of the Bible and the story, I don't know it perfectly. I'm a superficial Christian student because I'm not a practicing Christian and therefore I'm just telling you only 
how to relate it to the things from yoga. If you want to study Christian theology, then please do. And as uh, in, the, in the previous times, that's exactly what happened with Abraham, who was asked to sacrifice his own child, and he was about to sacrifice him, and then God said, okay, okay, just kidding, just joking, you're not supposed to kid, kill that child. I just wanted to make sure that you are devoted to me, and you are ready to go the full Monte, and so on. And then he gave him a covenant. And the covenant was, among others, that all the boys should be circumcised, that they should have their foreskin cut off as a sign of the allegiance of the tribe of Abraham with God, as a pact with God. And then the covenant is a bit upgraded at the time of Moses. Finally, God takes the Jews out of Egypt, and then on Mount Sinai, Moses is going and fasting for 40 days, and then he comes with the tablets of the law. So like God says, okay, I'm ready to make a nice deal with you. I give you 10 commandments. You, you live your life by these 10 commandments. They are very approximative, but still they will help you guide, you know, because thou shalt not kill is thou shalt not kill. You know, you can't be too stupid to misinterpret that one. No, so it's like uh, I give you these rules and then I shall be your friend. Whoever goes by these Ten Commandments, I'm going to protect you. You are going to be on my right side. You are going to be in the camp of my favorites. So those are covenants. But now, as you know, Jesus is changing it, is upgrading it. It's a crossroads in history. There has not been any major change from Moses until Jesus. There have been prophets. But none of them dare to come and say, look, God told me that the deal between him and you is like this. No. They said, follow, follow, follow up, follow up, follow up. Yeah, stick to it, repent, make great your way. Even John the Baptist, he didn't come and say, I'm going to give you another deal. Because you need to have the balls of an elephant. And in case you are not a liar and a cheater, Nobody would have the heart and the boldness to make such a statement. Like to make such a statement when actually you are not it, it's pure blasphemy. You know, John the Baptist would have been afraid to burn in hell forever if he would have dared to say some bizarre thing like this. Because he was never had a vision or something. The prophet Muhammad had... The archangel Gabriel came to him and said, Muhammad, son of Ali or whoever he was, write down what I'm telling you now. Like there, there was something. Muhammad said, uh, yeah, you know, like what to do? <coughs> no. So, but the others, if they haven't been given any special message, they had to stay within the confines of what was happening until that time. And now Jesus is coming and he's breaking all the rules. And he promises people the good news of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, this story of the kingdom of God basically says that the human being can reach either salvation or perfection. Salvation is if you reach with your consciousness to Anahata Chakra, 
and then this is called in Christianity salvation. It means when you die, your soul goes forward. It's like you passed an exam and then you can go to the next stage. And perfection is if you have become like Buddha. Like for Buddha, there is no more question of salvation because Buddha is not only saved, but he is more than saved. Buddha is a few steps beyond salvation. So this is the good news that Jesus is saying, God is kind to you. The old Jews were afraid of God. They were, you shouldn't say the name of God because you might say it wrong and God will get angry. You might rely too much on the name of God and then God would say, why do you use my name in all sorts of stupid things? And so on, you know, like, where are your car keys? Where are your motorbike keys? Only God knows. Like, slap, you know? Don't mention God when it comes to your motorbike keys, you know? Don't involve God in stupid things like this, you know? It's a sort of a taking the name of God lightly, too lightly, you know? Like, where, um, you know, you, you got the example, you understand what I'm saying there. No? So and so, it's like the Jews were afraid of God. God was jealous if you... Uh, suddenly worshipped a bit Kali or something. A Kali is not exactly God directly and God will hit you, strike you down and so on. Which of course in Tantra is an absolutely ridiculous concept because Kali is part of God and is a step in the go in the path to God. And also the Tantrics don't have any problem in worshipping Kali at the same time knowing that there exists an absolute universal consciousness which is not Kali. Kali is between you and that absolute universal consciousness and she can be a step, a, a, a footstep, you know, a support, a foothold in your path to God. So the Jews were having this terrible fear that God was a manipuristic, vengeful, terrible person. No? And Jesus says, now the deal is changing. Because this year has come and I visited the earth, there is a new deal. We could say in metaphysical terms, Kali Yuga is going in its last 2000 something years, like the last one third of Kali Yuga approximately, started about the time of Jesus. And Kali Yuga is becoming deeper. You are going to be more and more disturbed, more and more confused, more and more Svadhisthanistic, more and more selfish, more and more distracted, less and less faith, less and less purity, less and less this. So now God is giving you a sort of an advanced deal. It's like a Dutch auction, you know, if you couldn't buy this book when it was a hundred euros, Next day it becomes 90, next day it becomes 80, next day it becomes uh, until somebody has enough money to buy it, you know. It's like a Dutch auction, that's called the Dutch style auction, you know. Like God is giving you a better and better deal, but please do something. Take the finger out of your ass and try to save yourself, you know. And when Jesus says, with me, it becomes even easier. With Moses it was a bit difficult because there were 830 rules to follow. With me, I'm just giving you two rules, you know, love God from the bottom of your heart and love your neighbors as well, you know, it's like, that. there are just two rules. Please follow these two rules and you will have the kingdom of heaven. So, he's coming with good news in the meaning that he's telling them that the deal is like there is a 
exactly like uh, what they are called last minute tickets, right? When you buy airplane tickets in the last minute. And there was this, it's not happening now too much, but there was this thing that some companies, when they didn't sell the tickets in an airplane, in the last 24 hours, they dumped the price of the tickets to one third or something. And people, some people who used this, who expected this, they were buying tickets in the very last minute because they were extremely cheap. Because the company said, we are not going to fly that airplane empty. We have to have somebody in the airplane. So give the fucking tickets for $100. Just give them, you know, so that somebody buys them. It's better to have some people with $100 than to have nobody because we kept the price high. So it's the same here. It's almost like God is doing the Dutch auction, you know. As Cal Yuga is getting deeper, the deal is becoming easier. Please remember, this is a very important thing which is implied here, and it's not uh, explicitly mentioned by Jesus, but it's one of the fundamental laws of metaphysics. Like there is a quota to be fulfilled. There are 144,000 people to reach Shambhala or whatever. They have to. Something has to be done. There has to be some help, some support. If the world needs to have an Albert Einstein, then the divine consciousness is propagating one who is closest to the job. Somebody has to do that job, to fulfill that job, whatever that job means in the history of humanity, and whatever effects it has, positive, negative, that's of secondary importance. So the same with the spirituality. Even Jesus, when he prepares the twelve apostles that will come, I've already spoken about it and will come soon also, he says it, he says, pray for the Father in heaven to give workers because there is much work to be done in the field. Like there are many souls to be saved and I need to have a lot of saints and apostles and enlightened beings because otherwise who will go and spread the message? And that's a matter of divine grace, I don't know if you realize. Try to realize this, if you humanize God a little bit and if you say, in this Kali Yuga, there was place for uh, 100,000 enlightened beings. And we already have reached it. And door simply God simply closes the door and says no more until 2,500, nobody gets enlightened. There is no more place for enlightened beings. I fulfilled my quota and it won't happen. Nobody can force God to accept people in that level of consciousness. Because that level of consciousness is a level of samadhi, of nirvana, of enlightenment. is a level of consciousness which comes by grace. The human being cannot force that door open egoistically, like by pushing. Oh, but even if God doesn't want, I will just make him take a hundred thousand and one. Me. Because I have an extraordinary stubbornness and I can insist and insist. You can insist as much as you want. If the Divine Consciousness says no, then it's no. And thus, the idea is that a lot of things are happening in this humanity according to some mysterious cycles in time, maybe related to planets and definitely related to the Divine Consciousness. For example, if you study the spiritual history of the planet, you will see in India and elsewhere there was a big spiritual breakthrough in the centuries 7 and 8. Shankaracharya, 
the Hatha Yoga of Goraksha and Matsyendra, um, Vasubhukta and the birth of Kashmiri Shaivas. Then around the year 1000, 1100, things again start happening. In India you have an Abhinava Gupta, in Italy you have a Francis of Assisi, in the Sufi environment you get a Rumi. It's all happening in a number of centuries. But around the ninth century, almost nothing happened. There are cycles. It's exactly like an employer who comes and says, today I have 30 jobs. Who wants to get hired? No? And then they scoop. They are analyzing what's happening in the masses. Remember, there are cycles which we don't understand. As I was telling today to somebody, you know, I was joking because they asked me because they saw that I'm feeding some cats. And they said, what do you get out of it? And I said, I first of all try to evaluate what do the cats understand from my activity so that I can realize how much I understand the gods. Because exactly as the cats, what do the cats understand when I give them food? Because one day I'm busy and I have to go to Tong Salah, and I come later and I say, okay, now get some food quickly. You know, like they can't understand why the food is coming later, earlier, something. For them, the motivations which I have are completely incomprehensible for the brain of a cat. In the same way, for human beings, the motivations which the gods or the higher forms of consciousness have, that why in the 11th and 12th century so many enlightened beings got born, we have Milarepa in Tibet, we have a lot, Rumi and others, all of them around the same century. Then in the 13th century, almost nothing. In the 14th century, almost nothing. In the 15th century, again there is a wave, both in Europe and in Tibet and in India. Then you have Chaitanya, then you have Tsongkhapa in Tibet, then you have St. Gregory Palamas in Europe, and others and others. I could, no? So if you make a, 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 synchron, a synchronicity, a synchronized history from a spiritual standpoint, you will see that the number of enlightened beings varies with the epoch. No? Like in how many great yogis were there living in the 18th century? We don't know much, only Geranda is mentioned there. No? But then suddenly Ramakrishna comes and he opens the door and he says, God has sent me to revive. And after 1870 or 80, when Ramakrishna opens the door, then gurus start pouring in the lineage of Lahiri Mahasaya, Yukteswar and Yogananda, the lineages of Others and others, the spontaneous enlightenment of Ramana Maharishi and of Jiddu Krishnamurti and of Mahananda Mai. And the list could continue, like starting from 1880 and until 1960 or something, we have all of them. Shivananda, Ramakrishna was our first one, Vivekananda of India, Aurobindo, Ramana Maharishi, all of them flourished in the 1930s. Doesn't that show that there are some, some astrologers will say maybe some planets make it easier possible. So that's why, please remember, we don't understand it exactly how or why, but we can see that in the world of God's consciousness, sometimes there is more grace because it's like now we need workers in the field. 
now we need some people available. And God then says, ping, 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 like you, 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 and you. No? And that's exactly what grace does. And you can say, is God like some industrialist who needs engineers in the factory? We don't understand. We don't claim, neither I nor you claim to understand the mind of the universal consciousness. The universal mind. Because the universal mind has reasons which are completely unfathomable for a brain of 1.4 kilos living on the planet Earth. So it's like we have some feeble intuitions. Even Albert Einstein says, it's a glory to know that there exists a cosmic consciousness which our feeble spirit can only have the faith of a feeble intuition. He says, like, I, as a genius, have the intuition that there is a cosmic consciousness, but I never can claim that I'm taking breakfast with God and we are like this, you know, we are like... Uh, mates, you know, breakfast mates, and he is sharing with me the history of the world. Sometimes he does. He does it with John the Apostle, you know, who writes the book of Revelation, because God shared something with him. You know, but it's completely irregular, impredictable. Like, why didn't God give revelations about the end of the world to all the twelve apostles? Why? Were some of them better than the others? Weren't they all the followers of Jesus? Well, actually, 11 of them got assassinated, and one of them lived a hundred years of age in the island of Patmos. That was John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, another John. And he got some delirium tremens where he saw the future of the world, which is today called the book of the Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible, where the prophecies of John about the future centuries and millennia. And that's what I'm trying to say is like we can't understand. If you are, even if you ask me, I who probably know a bit more in some metaphysics than most of you, some of you might be very, very well educated in metaphysics, so I don't want to make it an absolute statement, but even I who know quite a bit in this and who I have practiced the things of yoga, I cannot claim, it would be an absurd claim for me to tell you that I understand why in the 12th century there were more enlightened beings than in the 13th century or the 14th. I don't know. There were some divine cycles, like from time to time, you know, God said, now I need workers, now I need people to change the earth a little bit. And then grace flew more abundantly. So may you live in times of grace. If you do yoga in times of grace, you are going to receive grace easier. That's what my first yoga teacher told me many, many years ago. Because at some point I told him, you know, I would like, it was communist times and what I was suggesting, it was like a blasphemy, like the impossibility, you know. I would have ended in prison or worse. No? But I told him, he said, I feel like I want to run in the mountains, build myself a hut in some forest where nobody has been, and just do yoga from morning till evening, you know, eat mushrooms from the forest or something. No, I will survive somehow, because like, what am I doing here? I'm going six hours per day to the university. I have to study, I have this, and then I want to do yoga and tantra. You know, it's like absurd. Like how much yoga and tantra am I getting to do? And then you are giving me to read the life of Milarepa. 
and I'm falling down with shame, you know, because Milarepa was a monster. He did yoga from morning till evening. He practiced yoga probably 14 hours per day. And then of course he brags that he reached everything in the universe and he could move the universe on his little finger, you know. But he did. He did 30 years of 14 hours per day. When will I accumulate so many hours of yoga and so decisively with very moderate diet, with very, you know, with no sexual temptations, with no, like, really go there like a titan? No. And I said, I'm, I feel discouraged. Like when I read the life of Milarepa, I feel encouraged because he is great, but I feel discouraged because I feel I will never rise to such dimensions, you know? How can you equal a person like that? No? And he answered to me, he had the answer to this, and he said the deal is that these people practiced more and they received less because they were in more blessed times and it was more easy to practice yoga in Tibet because you didn't have smartphones and anything and there was no distraction whatsoever. And the life of the peasants was as boring as the life of the yogis living in caves. No? So it's like there was nothing, you didn't give up anything. You actually, it was the smart choice to do. One third of the population of Tibet was in monasteries. One third. And, uh, no, so he said today, if you do, the help is much bigger. The help is much bigger. So in Kali Yuga, when you do the right things, the help is much bigger. That's why you cannot measure yourself with Milarepa and others. The question is, is now a time when wisdom is required? My perception of it, and something which I've discussed with many of my teachers and with wise gurus that I've met in my life, is that now there is going to be, there is a time for a big explosion in spirituality, because the religions have fallen apart, people are believing less and less, the world is becoming more and more secular and atheistic, there is more and more confusion, and at the level of humanity, it's like spirituality is so much needed, because it's exactly like you don't have a vitamin in your bloodstream, and your body is asking for that particular mineral or vitamin. That humanity is asking for wisdom and spiritual guidance, especially because there is so little of it left. So, my first yoga guru was very smart and he told me, practice, practice, because you are going to get what Milarepa got with one-tenth of the effort of Milarepa. And I told him, but doesn't Milarepa get pissed off that he had to do 30 years, 14 hours per day, and I'm doing just three years with five hours per day, and I'm getting similar results. And he said, no, Milarepa, from wherever he is now, he will understand that it's a different time and that the grace manifests. Because remember, 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 we don't do anything alone. We do it in grace, via grace, with grace. We are not alone. We are not isolated from the ecosystem, so to speak, in which we live. We live in a holistic reality. And in this holistic reality, it's exactly like you say, 
in India, there was a million people and they needed one Brahman for 1,000 people. So they needed to be 1,000 Brahmins in one million people of population. Because one Brahman can administer to the spiritual needs of about a thousand people. So this balance was maintained somehow. Somehow. Like by a miracle. By the forces of nature. Somehow. In the same way, spirituality is necessary. And if a lot of traditional spirituality has fallen apart, not so much in Thailand. For example, you don't see Thais. We live in Thailand for 15 years. And they don't come here. Because for them, the Buddhist monks in the monasteries all over Thailand are good enough. They say, we don't know. Some Romanian guy who teaches yoga, we don't know. It's like, you know, it's, and, and yoga is also something not very Thai. It doesn't have roots in the history of not too much anyway. And so, so it's like, what is this? So they prefer to, but if Thai Buddhists would go to the dogs, then the Thais would start going around desperate, saying, what can we do, what can we do, what can we do? Because some of them have spiritual needs. And for the time being, they feel that they can satisfy those needs by going to Chong Tong or to Swan Mok or to different other famous monasteries and getting some guidance there. So that's why I say it's a matter of demand and offer. If there is a demand, then Shambhala has to have the offer prepared. It's like in the laws of economics. The spiritual world has to be able, because people say, God, I asked for guidance and nothing came. You'll never be able to say that, because any time when you ask, there is an offer. You might choose not to see it. You might be stupid enough not to see it. That's your problem. But then God will say, look, you had this offer. It was right under your nose. You didn't see it. That's your problem. It's your choice. But the offer was there, so you can never blame it on God. Oh, there was no alternative for me. That's not true. There is always one, two, three alternatives. The divine consciousness is always predicting and acting in such a way that there is always some availability. Yeah, if the number of people who have spiritual aspiration is decreasing, then of course there will be fewer gurus, fewer enlightened beings, fewer saints in Buddhism or Christianity, because what should they do? Of course it's about their own personal evolution, and personal evolution is also a factor. But it's not the only factor. Remember, we are not alone. We are not selfish performers who say, but I have done 30,000 millions with the Anabandas. I think I deserve it. If God says no, it's still no. Even if you have done 30,000 million with the Anabandas. No, it's still no. So we are not alone. Spirituality is a synergic effort in which we move together with the world we move together with this, and then if God says, I need somebody to go to Rome, to convert the Romans to Christianity, there is this crazy guy called Paul. Okay, give him some light. <laughs> then he gets some light, and suddenly Paul becomes a great saint, because God needed somebody 
And it's like Shambhala says, we have a list of ten applicants. And the most qualified on this list is this guy called Paul. Everybody agrees? Shall it be Paul? Yeah, okay. God, Paul is the name of the game. This is how like we, we live in a synergy with higher levels. The Buddhists say that always everything has to pass through the filter of the Buddhas of the past, present and future. The Buddhas of the past, present and future, they look at you. They bless you. They support you for what you do. And thus, spiritual aspiration is never alone. They were in Mahabharata, when you read the great Dima, the grandfather of the heroes there, the great Bhima at some point he says, I shall refrain from sex, I am becoming celibate to the end of my life and so on. And the gods were amazed because not many people were having the brains and there was not the metaphysical knowledge to do that. And all the gods were like, wow, glory be to Bhima. No, Bhima is a man like not many. He is one of the first ones who discovered this and he went into full-on celibacy. But these are stories which are like 5,000 years old or more, you know, before the time of Krishna and the Pandavas. And then Bhima was given some divine gifts by the gods, like the Shambhala, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, they look upon you. And it would be amazing if you could surprise them pleasantly. If you do some shit and you surprise them unpleasantly, they will shed a tear of compassion, you know, like you, there has been a great chance with you and uh, you didn't qualify, you know. But what if you can surprise pleasantly, you know, like make more, take decisions, do tapas, surpass yourself, go in your heart and you're in your higher chakras. And then Shambhala will stand up in ovation, you know, we say, whoa. It's like you watch on an Olympic stadium and some athlete performs something amazing and all the stadium stands up and starts like, whoa, no, we've seen something which is groundbreaking. It's the same. We are here in the eyes of the gods. The deities and the gods look at us right now, this minute. Shambhala sees you. The Buddhas of the past, present and future, they see you. Our life is in the spotlight, constantly. And therefore the question is, what do we do with our lives? With our lives. So, this is what I'm talking about in here, that when Jesus says there is a new deal, it's also a matter of understanding that there needs to be grace. Things are happening through the agency of grace. Nobody gets accidentally and selfishly into the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus is bringing this. He says, the time has come as a proof. I have personally come to tell you about it. There is a new covenant. Things are becoming lighter. I'm giving you new rules. 
I'm simplifying somehow the things, although of course the effort is still there. And I have new, I have good tidings, I have good news for all of you. This is great. It's actually Jesus was defining the beginning of a new age, of a new time. <coughs> and that story tells us, so he went, when he was not healing and doing miracles and other discourses, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, which was surprising for people. This is one of the roots of the conflict because only the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the people who studied, the, they thought we can do it, maybe, maybe. If God is not pissed off at us, we can get some grace. And now Jesus is coming and saying, there is a new rules of the game, new rules of the game, and the last shall be the first, and the first shall be the last. And it's like, uh, of course, the priests don't like the new rules because they were the privileged class until Jesus appeared on the stage. And like the Brahmins in India, and then Buddha appears, and he says there are no more Brahmins, there are no more coolies, there are no more outcasts, all this caste system is dead. They didn't love Buddha. There are many people, especially the high caste people, they hated Buddha. Kings and others, they tried to assassinate Buddha. Why? Because he was taking their privileges from them. He was upsetting the status quo of the society. Jesus is also upsetting completely the status quo, only that Jesus is a bit more radical. He doesn't touch so much the social things. Those are a consequence. Jesus comes directly to the spiritual things and attacks them. And he says, look, Matthew, who is a tax collector, will go to the kingdom of heaven. And all those people who studied hard the Talmud and whatever in Jerusalem, they are going to hell because they are hypocrites and liars. How could you expect them that they would like this story, these tidings, you know, that suddenly the last become the first and the first are discovered to be in offside, you know, completely butt naked and it's like, oh, we were not so great actually. Their ego couldn't take it. That's why so much hate against Jesus because he had this uncompromising way and he came with a big mission and that was it. And uh, if you will see Mahabharata ever, you will see that in Mahabharata is the same thing. Duryodhana, who is the boss of the bad guys, the oldest of the bad brothers, he says, I have been a nice king, I have been generous, I loved my wives, I did this, I did that. Why does everybody consider me like the devil or something like this? No? And Krishna is telling to Arjuna or to Yudhishthira, he says, don't even listen to me, don't talk to me. No, because you can't really understand. You can't really understand how the first became the last. How somebody who was in a position where she looked like the number one citizen, he became very low and he now he is the bad guy and the enemy and the darkness. Because the rules of the game have just been changed. And Krishna came to change the rules of the game. And then it's like, oops. The same with Jesus. Jesus changed the rules of the game violently and people who consider themselves religious authorities, suddenly they were no more. The twelve were with him, the apostles were with him at this time 
and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. So, women were in the entourage, which was highly unusual. Even today, in the Jewish environment, not only that they have the scandalous prayer, for which they crucified me online, that I mentioned it, that there is a Jewish prayer which says, God, thank you that you did not make me into a woman. No men say this prayer every morning. But, and it has a meaning, of course, we cannot go there right now. No, because it comes from an old tradition, and in its day, it had a meaning. But, even today, in Judaism, there are teachers who teach Kabbalah, and the rule is very simple. To learn Kabbalah, you must be a man, you must be 40. If you are 39, they don't teach you Kabbalah, and you must be Jew. You must be converted to the Jewish religion. So it's like, what are the women doing there 2,000 years ago when people were much more racistic and sexist and when we made analysis in so many Q&As and so on, I have shown to you that women are best treated in Christianity and a little bit in Hinduism. Like in Judaism, they were counted as belonging to their husband. There are 20,000 people, which means 20,000 men, plus their wives and children. They are not even counted in Judaism. In Islam, you all know what the situation is in Islam. Again, it's not as bad as uh, CNN tries to make it sound, because there are today women, American women, born in America, who convert themselves to Islam, thousands of them without getting married to some Arab guy who has great sex with them, so they are hypnotized by the lingam of that man. We're talking about women who, without sexual interaction, they get converted to Islam because they think it's better for women to be an Islamic woman than an American 21st century woman. And go on YouTube and just Google this, which I told you, and you will see. There are interviews with such women and it sounds like madness. Because on one hand you have Hillary Clinton saying, oh, the poor Islamic women, they are so suppressed. And then in her own country there are thousands of women who choose to go Islamic. So there must be something which you are not being told about the condition of the woman in Islam, what she can do, what she does, and so on, how much she is protected by the religious rules and so on. No, but then say, well, but if she gets drunk and she goes and vomits in the middle of the city, then she is not protected anymore. Yeah, that's true. If you are a British woman, you can go get dead drunk and go in Piccadilly Circus and throw up, and there will be compassion for you. If you live in Amman or in Riyadh, that will not be the case, right? So it's, of course, there are different rules of the game. Yeah? So in some places it's more, in some places it's less. But for some women, the things which are more mattered more than the things which are less. They are ready to make a sacrifice and say, I didn't plan to get drunk and go throwing up in the middle of the city anyways. So for me, this freedom doesn't matter, but the other things which I'm getting in exchange, they are great. So, but the condition of the women when you analyze it in Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, these are the five main religions on the face of this earth. Only in Christianity women, thousands of them became saints, 
And within India, there are female saints. And in Buddhism, pretty much not at all, very little, a little bit in Tibet, in some extreme forms of tantric Buddhism. And when it comes to Jewish female prophets, and when it comes to Muslim, Sufi, or some other female saints, the numbers are astronomically small. And therefore, we can see from this on the consideration given to the women. And of course, you would expect this from a man like Jesus. Jesus being the radical spirit, the radical divine spirit that he is, he is definitely seeing into people beyond gender. He looks directly at the soul of the people and accessing directly the soul of the people. He does not make limitations that women should not listen to the spiritual teachings or should not do this practice or should come to the mosque only on Fridays because in the other days they don't belong in the mosque <laughs> or some other rules and regulations like this which are there. <laughs> Very few of you realize, but it's groundbreaking. No, there have been women who have gone to speak with the Dalai Lama, modern North American women, and the Dalai Lama is an honorary citizen of uh, Canada or whatever. So they went to him and they said, the Dalai Lama, you are a modern, emancipated Buddhist teacher. What about the women being part of the Sangha? <laughs> and being ordinated properly, because they are ordinated, but not properly, and all that. And the Dalai Lama simply started crying in public. There is the recording. He simply cried physically, <laughs> and he said, it's not possible for me to change 2,500 years of Buddhist history. I don't have that warrant. <laughs> Shambhala did not come to me and say, you, the 14th Dalai Lama, now you have a special permission to turn the course of history and to do this. He said, I don't feel I have the right to do this. And he says, I have to conform myself to the tradition which I got from my ancestors. And in that tradition there is not so. He said, my, my soul is crying for you. I'm in tears of compassion. Because I understand that you are a human being and you have a soul and you want to practice and you want to achieve and maybe some of you are crazy enough that you want to achieve nirvana in this lifetime, in this body. And I'm with you and I'm not saying it's impossible. But the Buddhist system which I have inherited from my predecessors doesn't have that loophole there. There is no system there. So he says, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. The Dalai Lama, this is one of the major spiritual leaders and trend makers of the modern days. Very experienced and with an excellent reputation in terms of fairness and spirituality and all that. So, you might not realize because you may have been poisoned with anti-Christian propaganda. But when you look at the scale of human history, the last 3,000 years of history, under the umbrella of Jesus, women had one of the greatest blossomings and one of the greatest things. Like any woman who practiced and reached to Sahasrara is proclaimed the same. We have hundreds and perhaps thousands of female saints in the calendar which are being celebrated. Like, look, that woman, Barbara, or that woman, 
whoever, Teresa of Avila or that woman, they are great saints. You can pray to them. They are icons with those saints and you can fall on your knees and pray to them. So it's like, it's very liberal and you can see it starts with Jesus. In Jesus's little circle of friends, there were the apostles who as men had to be solar and go out there and they were the ones who continued the duties of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, but there were also women accepted, which again, maybe they didn't have a clearly defined function, but if they wanted to listen to Jesus talking about the nine blessings, they were welcome. Jesus said, sure. No, this woman cried on his feet. He said, okay, I can see you have aspiration and that your soul has been moved. So go ahead, come stay with me, listen to what I have to say, practice what I'm saying, try to fulfill, and you are welcome. You are welcome. Everybody is welcome. Jesus is very revolutionary in this way until today. But there has been a lot of propaganda because some feminists say, yeah, but the women got something, but they didn't get as much as we would like that the women would have got. Sure. You know, like, now come and rise the stakes and make Jesus guilty that he was not generous enough, you know, and so on. So, of course, you can always find reasons to be discontent of something, but it's interesting that the narrator, Luke in this case, he says that the core, there was a core group which was traveling with Jesus, and those were the 12 apostles, and there were also women, and probably a few others, maybe not the whole year, but a few months in a turn. Remember, people had duties, families, they had to make a living to earn their daily bread. So, again, a number of people could afford, and a number of people could not afford. And he says, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, but weren't there any healthy women who just came without being cured of evil spirits and diseases? You see, there are many, many uh, interpretations here, because in some radical Hindu environments, even menstruation is a manifestation of some low spirits and of some low energies. So you can say there were some women whose menstruation had been stopped. And that's why the text says some women have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. The formulation is extremely vague. And if you will try to meditate, what does it mean? In the old days, the most simple manifestation of evil spirits was... Epilepsy. Today, epilepsy is a disease of the brain and you treat it with a medicine. But 2,000 years ago, if you were epileptic, you were possessed by evil spirits. And every, every epileptic seizure was a crisis of being possessed. So, and guess what? It's the same in the Greek and Roman medicine, and it's the same in Ayurveda and in the Tibetan medicine. All of them consider epileptic seizures a possession by the demons. And I can tell you from the standpoint of yoga that something is true because you can solve it with a chemical. But what's happening to the soul? What's happening to the energy? 
when somebody has a seizure of epileptic kind. I don't know if you have even seen somebody having an epileptic seizure, and moreover, if you ever tried to stop it. I did, and I have been taught also how to stop it energetically, like how to prevent it energetically. And there is a dark side to it. So people don't want to see it because if you have a cousin or if any one of you here in the group has suffers from epilepsy, and maybe you don't have it because you take every day a pill, no? And then Swami Vivekananda says epilepsy is a form of epileptic uh, of demonic possession. Then you are going to stand up and go because your ego cannot take it that I am offending you to your face. And I'm you are telling me, Swamiji, I don't want to be insulted. I don't want to feel inferior to anybody. I fought a lot in my life with this handicap that I have epilepsy. And luckily I found some good doctors who gave me a pill and now I'm normal. And now you come and tell me that actually I'm potentially possessed by demons. Fuck you and fuck Agama, you know. This is how many people get pissed off at our school and at myself. Because sometimes I'm telling some things from the tradition and they are not politically correct and they are not soothsaying and they represent views of the world which are very rough. And uh, I could argue about this a lot, but remember that here the author says that there were some women who had been cured by evil spirits and diseases. What were they? All of them were sick, for God's sake. All of them were possessed. Or some things which we consider normal were considered possession by evil spirits or disease. Like, for example, to be a bitch is a disease. Is it to be possessed by demons if you make the life of the man around you hell? Is this some spiritual disease? Or, ah, my mother has been a bitch. My cousin is a bitch. Everybody is a bitch. What do you want? It's normal. It's acceptable. It has become acceptable. No? So therefore, I'm just challenging you to some painful thinking. What's happening here? Because again, Jesus was the most liberal of the great teachers of humanity. And still... There are some things here. There is a gospel of Mary Magdalene or of Peter. I forgot in which one of them. And these are gospels which have never been censored by the church because these are the Gnostic gospels. And this one is uh, from the Nag Hammadi, from the second series of Gnostic gospels. They have been discovered in two places and then independently a few others here and there. But there are two big corpuses, two big collections. And in the second one, there is a gospel, the gospel of Mary Magdalene or the gospel of Peter. I don't remember because, as I told you, I'm not a theologian and a Christian scholar. And in that one, Peter actually opposes this. Peter was older than Jesus. When Jesus came and uh, relied him, Peter had a wife, two children minimum. And he was a fisherman getting a bit old. A grumpy fisherman. So if Jesus was 30, Peter was 40. So of course Peter was a little bit uh, bold. This is what made him to be a little bit more bold, you know. And even to Jesus, he asked, 
And one day Jesus was talking and talking and talking. And unfortunately, no, human beings get fed up. If you stay with Jesus for three days, it's like, whoa, the heavens have opened. And I, but if you stay with Jesus for two years, and the hippie keeps saying the same thing in every village, you start getting bored, which is absurd, because you should never get bored with Jesus. But it's, it's boring. Some people don't come to Q&A or to this because they say, Swamiji, I have heard you saying many of these things before. Anyway, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't harm you to hear them about 20 times over. Because all I have to do is hammer them and hammer them and hammer them in your brains. So repetition is the mother of learning. You know? So there's no problem that sometimes I would bring up the same principles or the same truth. It's normal. But it's precisely because I want to etch them in your brains so that you stay with something from all this. So, Peter, at some point Jesus is teaching and instead of him being in ecstasy, like, oh my God, Jesus, who is God, is with us for a few years. And look, he's opening his mouth. He's opening his mouth and he's talking. Like every word which he says should be poured in golden letters and engraved upon the walls, you know, because this is God coming once every so many thousand years and talking. You know? What Yogananda has said, you may afford to forget some of the words of Yogananda, but what Jesus has said is like 20 times more important than what Yogananda has said, simply because Yogananda is a baby compared to Jesus. So, Peter is getting a bit annoyed, you know, and instead of focusing on the message, because he probably heard it 20 times over, he says, but uh, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, why is Mary with us? Because isn't this supposed to be just a teaching for men? He simply raises the issue, because there is an elephant in the room. There are women being present to teachings, which until then had been given only to men, strictly. And Jesus is breaking so many rules, and he's breaking this one as well. And you know what Jesus answers to this one. Jesus doesn't actually make social sciences saying, oh, the whole history is bullshit, and women are pretty good, and so what if she's a... He doesn't take, try to make philosophy with them. He says, don't worry, Mary is special among women. And he says, I shall make her into a man. He means mentally, psychologically, not physically. He says, I shall make her into a man so that she can do the kingdom of heaven and so on. So Jesus says, women, when they come to spirituality, they have to develop their animus. They have to develop their inner man. I, I have seen, I have looked much at women who were successful in spirituality. I have seen in my life gurus and women who were truly very advanced in spirituality. And guess what? Most of them had a man's mind. You know, like sometimes there are women, and even guys say, you know, even the women say, I don't like to go with girls. My best friends are men. I like to stay with men. I, I love men. I, don't, I feel good among men, because my brain functions like men's brains. There are women who read hardcore science fiction. 
There are women who play computer games which only men play those computer games. And other, they are a little bit manly in their health. Most of the women that I've seen in high-level spirituality are exactly these kinds of women. So I could understand by observing what Jesus says. Because he says, I will make Mary Magdalene like a man. But okay, we know that Mary Magdalene, first of all, she had been a prostitute. And you know from the lecture on polarity of energy in the day two of the Agama courses that this is mentioned. That prostitutes are a typical example of women who can control their mind and emotions hundred times better than the other women around men. Most other women, they would be touched by some peculiar guy, they would start throwing up with disgust. Prostitutes do it six times per night, and they don't, they don't feel good, but they somehow manage to cut it and to simply say, I don't feel what I don't want to feel. I just need to make money, and that's it. I'm not saying that's a positive thing, to, to live your life like that, to sell yourself for money and to desensitize yourself. But at the same time, nevertheless, it is an amplification of the masculinity in a woman. And thus, uh, here, Jesus says this, Mary Magdalene is almost like a man, and I shall educate her, say, don't do this, don't do that, please try to cultivate this, please, and no, and make her more like that. So Jesus actually explains in apocryphal gospels, some intense things. So these women, this author doesn't say they were a solar, they were very masculine women, they were this or that. He, the author here, and Luke hasn't met with Jesus. Luke is writing second hand or third hand. So the way he understood it when he writes it here, he says there were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, whatever he understands by that. Might be some politically incorrect and gender discriminatory statements. Might actually be true that some of these women had diseases or, because if you remember there is an episode, I don't think it has happened yet, it's somewhere further, and I don't know if uh, Luke mentions it in this gospel, but it is mentioned in other gospels, and uh, there, there is the story that a woman has so much faith that Jesus is passing and she doesn't dare to tell him, Jesus, Jesus, I'm bleeding in my yoni. Can you do something for help me? You know, because there are a hundred people around. So with faith and humbleness, she just touches his robe. He just touches his clothes. And the bleeding stops instantaneously. It's one of the crazy miracles, you know. And Jesus knows that it has happened because he can feel the energy going through him like the lightning, you know. And he says, who has, who has touched me? And Peter says, are you crazy? You are surrounded by a thousand five hundred people in religious delirium. And you are asking, who has touched you? Oh, everybody has touched you. Are you crazy? You know? Like, what kind of question is this? And then that woman, because she thinks that maybe she did something wrong or she overstretched it, she says, sorry, sir, I have done it, but I'm sick, I'm bleeding to death, and so on. And then uh, Jesus uses it as an example. He didn't want to punish her, on the contrary. He just wanted to say, look, this woman had so much faith, she just touched, and she got healed. 
No. So maybe one of these women suffered from excessive menstruation or something, you know? So we don't know, but the author feels the need to say that there were women who were there and that these women had something peculiar. What he feels is peculiar, he says they were cured of evil spirits and diseases. Take it any way you want. Again, we can analyze a lot. You know, maybe these women were no longer bitchy. And this means they were cured of evil spirits, because a woman who is a bitch is possessed by an evil spirit. Like, you can put it any way you want in a humoristic or sad way, in a politically incorrect or in a politically correct way. That's not the point. The point here is, of course, you feel free to meditate, but the, feel, the point here is that Jesus says that there were also women, I'm sorry, Luke says, there were also women in the group of Jesus, and these women were having some peculiarities. They were peculiar women. And he says, Colin, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have come out. So Mary Magdalene is potentially the woman that cried on his feet in the great movie Jesus of Nazareth. It is presented like this, like the woman who cried on the feet of Jesus is actually precisely Mary Magdalene. However, the Bible doesn't say it directly. It's not mentioned. So Mary of Magdalene is mentioned separately. But it may have been the woman from the previous chapter as well. So now it's like a different story and he says there were women and the first one is Mary called Magdalene from the city of Magdala, that's why it is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have come out. Now Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and most people considered her unclean. What were the seven demons what was the perfectionistic lifestyle of the Essenes or whatever the community of Jesus was, this Puritanic Jewish people who consider, no, it's like whatever they did. And there is a movie called Mary Magdalene published a couple of years ago. And in that movie, they try to make a sort of a psychological movie about Mary Magdalene and stuff and to go a little bit into this. The fact is that the Bible, Luke here, tells us seven demons have come out of her. Of course, seven is also a beautiful number. Why not six? Why not eleven? Why not five? Why seven, you know? Seven of all things. Seven demons have come out. Like, it's very symbolic. And at the same time, we don't know the details. You know, like, okay, here comes out the demon of financial greed, because you have been a greedy bitch and you had sex for money. So the greed came out of her. Then you also enjoyed having sex, so you are just actually addicted to orgasm, and you are a nymphomanic woman. So the demon of nymphomania came out of her. And, you know, like, we don't know which were those seven, and so on. There is just this thing that Mary Magdalene was, had been purified by no less than seven demonic influences, and now she was worthy to be in the circle, in the inner circle, in the restricted circle of Jesus. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. I have never heard anything more. I think only theologians will know to make connections and to say who was this and who was that. A woman, Joanna, 
is mentioned and who was the wife of somebody important in the court of the Jewish king of those days. Susanna, the third name on the list. Susanna is again a famous name because there is even this famous painting, I forgot who did it, which is called Susanna at the Bar, a very sensual woman, voluptuous, who was taking naked baths and all these Pharisees and so on. They were getting horny and they wanted to have sex with her because this was a super sexy woman who was flaunting her. Uh, now somehow she is quoted like being part of Jesus' environment or maybe it's another Susanna. As I'm telling you, I don't know these kind of details. These are history of the church and theological. The fact is that we are given examples of women who are there. But then we know others. There were two sisters who were the sisters of Lazarus. And one of them was called Mary. And that's not Mary Magdalene. That's Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And the other sister of Lazarus was called Martha. And Martha is mentioned somewhere because she was cooking in the kitchen and bringing them food. So there were other women. These were just a list. Mary, the second Mary, Martha, and a few others. And many others, says Luke. So that's revolutionary. Very revolutionary. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Which means two things. These women were coming from the family environment and they were the holders of the purse of the family. So they had the money. So if each one of these women was donating 10 gold coins to the group of Jesus, then the group of Jesus had food and whatever other things for one year. So these women, you know, you would expect is the Shiva Shakti thing. Shiva comes with the spirit. Jesus is the supreme <laughs> Shiva. No? So Jesus comes with the heaven, with the message of heaven. He is the incarnated Shiva. And then there is Shakti, who is the mother aspect, who is the earth. Normally the women in such a group, they are the ones who take over the functions of the earth. Like Jesus, are you hungry? Can we stop the whole thing and give you some papadums or something because you've been speaking for three hours non-stop? This is what a woman would do in the group of Jesus. No? Like Jesus, it's cold tonight in Israel. Do you need a sweater or something to put on your shoulders? No? Like it's normal for women to bring this maternal aspect into it and to take care of the things like food, sleeping, money. It doesn't mean that the women were not doing the spiritual things as well. That's why they were there. Because there was this fascinating man called Jesus and he was telling them some incredible things and he was opening the door to the most incredible stuff. So of course they were there to... No. It's like the heaven fertilizes the earth. The earth is the greatest lover of the heaven. In Chinese mythology, the thing which does this, which is exactly like the male ejaculation, is the rain. Because the heaven rains. And because the heaven rains, the earth can produce vegetables and fruits. So the way of creating fertility is for the heaven to send his sperm down on earth, and then the womb of Mother Earth takes it, and produces fertility 
and multiplicity. I'm saying this because Jesus is about to go in the parable of the sower, of the one who sows seeds. It's exactly about fertility that we're talking about in the coming things, probably not tonight, because we'll not reach that far at the speed where I'm moving. But where I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that, of course, the earth is hungry for the heaven. And when a man like Jesus, who is 100% heaven, comes, then, of course, the earth is moved. Like all the women would be in love with Jesus. The women who had too many demons, they were probably not. And they shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. They were the ones who never understood because Jesus was upsetting the social order and it was too much for them. But the women who were a bit open, it's like, wow, Jesus, penetrate me, take me. Of course, Jesus, as far as we know, and it's 99.9999 probable that it was so, he was not practicing sexual teachings, although he could talk about sex because most people around him had sex and they asked him, but Jesus, when we are with our wife, what do we do? And then he said probably, pray like this and pray like that and consecrate to God the Father and this and that. There were teachings which survived in the Gnostic church. There is the bedchamber prayer in the Coptic Gnostic church of Egypt. There still exist a few prayers like this. So, uh, but again, everything which I'm saying here is metaphorical. You know? Like, there may be a man who is very creative and interesting. And uh, for me, he is not so much, but I see that for the world he is. Like uh, Woody Allen. Or take the other guy who became the husband of Marilyn Monroe. What was he called? Miller something. Henry Miller or something like this, you know? Look at the picture of Woody Allen. He's a pathetic, tiny little guy who has glasses as thick as siphon bottoms, you know? He is like a... he's not the most handsome man in the world. Look at Henry Miller. Was that a man to clobber, to be rude really, to clobber Marilyn Monroe? Was his dick worth of Marilyn Monroe? Like you'd expect a god, you'd expect a Hercules, you'd expect a, a spiritual Brad Pitt or something to get the attention of Marilyn Monroe. But guess what? Marilyn Monroe got caught by Henry Miller. Why? Because he was a very witty intellectual. And so is Woody Allen. So women get excited sometimes by men's intelligence, by men's spirituality. Today, many women have decayed. They don't have that high vishuddha or something, and they don't feel. In the country where I come from, there is another politically incorrect proverb, which today people, and especially women, they don't like to quote it too much or anymore. But when I was a kid, everybody used it, and it was valid in society. And that proverb says, a man has to be a little bit more beautiful than the devil. Like, you, you never require from a man that he should look great. This Baywatch, this Beverly Hills 9200, 
is just a Kaliuga dementia. Because women are not looking for... If a woman looks good, that's a cherry on top of a cake. That's a bonus. But women, apparently, this is folklore. It's wisdom which crystallized over thousands of years. Women were interested in something else. If a, if a man can protect you, if a man can put bread and butter on the table, if a man can take your emotional instability and survive in the middle of your emotional insecurities, if a man is like this and like that, then that man is good. And it doesn't matter if he looks like Woody Allen. Yeah, but you know, you can talk to him, and when he opens his mouth, he is so witty, he is so intelligent, he makes you laugh. Oh, when he speaks about God, oh my God, then you should listen to Paramahamsa Yogananda. The women in the school of Paramahamsa Yogananda were in love with Paramahamsa Yogananda. Not necessarily for sex. Maybe some thought, oh, let me try. Maybe he wants also to give me his linga. No. In a tantric school, this happens, and everybody is barking about it and criticizing it, because they said what? But in almost every place of spirituality, women are naturally, especially spiritual women, are naturally in love with spiritual men, because spiritual men are the rain which comes in the dry earth. Ah, finally, I'm with a spiritual man, and I feel fulfilled, I feel balanced. I feel, you know, I'm getting something. For many women, I've spoken with so many women, for him, for whom this was a truth. I met also women who said, no, I'm not making love with men who are too old or too fat or too this or too that, you know. There are also criteria like that. But Jesus, if he would have lived to be 60 years old, he wouldn't have said he's too old. He didn't get to live 60 years old, but to Jesus, it doesn't matter. If he's 60 years old, he's probably even more sharp than when he was 30. So I'm telling you all this to understand that uh, these women were there. They definitely were what you would call groupies. These were groupies of Jesus. I hope you are familiar with the environment. Yeah? The rock stars and other popular performers, they have groupies. When Leonardo DiCaprio shows up, there's a hundred women who piss their pants and yell in ecstasy. So on, you know, these are groupies. So Jesus also had groupies. Yogananda also had groupies. Everybody who is spiritual has groupies. Virgin Mary has male groupies. There are monks who feel in love with Virgin Mary, like Virgin Mary is the archetypal, ultimate woman that lived on the face of this earth. The most pure, the most spiritual, the most surrendered woman <laughs> that ever stepped, walked on the face of this earth, at least in known history. So I'm telling you all these things to understand that, of course, there is an attraction, and that attraction is mostly spiritual, especially if the guru says, I'm celibate. Then if the guru is celibate, nobody comes to thinking, they say, okay, here in this is like a monastery, but I still like this man tremendously. I have a crush on this man, 
or on this woman oppositely, tremendously. And that's, that's why those women were there, very receptive to Jesus. Therefore, women who had some Vishuddha, some Ajna, because they could feel Jesus, otherwise they wouldn't react. Remember, there are thousands of women in Israel who didn't feel Jesus. Maybe when he raised the dead man from the grave, they were like, Oh, God, is this really true? No, like, you know, they were hit by a hammer because it was evidence, it was visual, it was obvious. But otherwise, they were not. My first yoga teacher told me this. He says, you'll see when you do yoga a lot. If you activate your Svadhisthana chakra a lot and you walk on the street, all the women and many men will notice you immediately. Like people turn their head after you because it's like you are a flashing rainbow walking on the curb. But if you are very strongly activated on Ajna Chakra, nobody will notice that you are passing on the main street in town. Like people don't, only if there is a very clairvoyant person coming around, they'll say, oh, I've never seen a man like you. Who are you, sir? Are you new in our city? No, I would like to know you. Like they will immediately notice that there is something special. Otherwise, Jesus would have to make his halo visible. You know, if he would walk with a visible halo on the head, then people would say, oh, this guy is really something different, you know. But otherwise, Jesus walks and people don't know he's Jesus. It's true. You may see that sometimes a person has very special features, like the face of somebody who is wicked and who has on his face 15 times per day grimaces of wickedness, like... <laughs> this produces a rictus. It produces wrinkles, which keep the face molded in that way. A person who all day long is in samadhi and goes into like, whoa, into awe, into spiritual awe, then even when they are not in that state and they go to buy some potatoes, they still have a bit of the same face. People who are a bit careful, they look and they say, Sir, you are different. You are not kind of the average person who comes around in our place. You know, it's like I can see that somehow you are different. So, um, therefore, to the fact that these women and men were reacting to Jesus, it showed that, of course, they had some Vishuddha, Anahata, Ajna, Sahasrara, you know, because they were really puzzled by this man. For example, the great Vivekananda of India, he was constantly and completely provoked by Ramakrishna. But he didn't believe in God, and whenever Ramakrishna spoke about God, he got completely irritated. Vivekananda, in the beginning of his spiritual instruction, he was completely split because half of him loved Ramakrishna to bits. Like this Ramakrishna was like, whoa, you know, when, when I'm in the presence of this man, it's like something blossoms inside me. And then he was so provoked by Ramakrishna when he was raving about God because he himself, Vivekananda, he considered himself a rationalist, and he said, what God? And he asked Ramakrishna, what's this God you talk about, you know? 
can you see this God? You know, like he was a mulacaristic Capricorn, you know, utilitarian, you know. He said, what is this God? Can you touch it, see it? What is it, you know? And Ramakrishna candidly looked at him and said, I can see God better than I can see you now. Because, of course, I can see you with my two eyes, and I see God with my third eye, which is something much, much bigger than the physical eyes, something much deeper. <clears throat> so what I see of God is like galactically, macrocosmically, hugely different from what I see, that I see eight pillars made of cement and 20 people sitting and listening. You know, this is nothing compared to the vision of God. <clears throat> so he said, and eventually, Vivekananda got so provoked by the man who was to become his guru, that he said, you know, sir, sometimes I'm taken to the limit and I think you are crazy. I think you are a mental nutcase, you know, because you sing and you do crazy things and we cannot understand you and we cannot follow you. And sometimes we think that you are too much. You are a little bit nuts. So maybe you are a great yogi, but like sometimes you are overdoing it. There's 10% of you which is on the side of madness. And of course, uh, Ramakrishna was a divine madman in some way, so he was not wrong, but only that that madness was not pathological madness to go to the hospital. It was divine madness and it meant something very, very great. So, uh, in the same way, you have to think about this, that people who are attracted by a Jesus, by a Ramakrishna, by a Milarepa, of course they have something, because other people come, they take a little bit, and then they say, no, I was pissed off. No. They can, no, they say on internet, oh, I think uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda had sex with a lot of women in Agama and so on. That, of course, produces the Casanova complex, and everybody is jealous. Like, yeah, I'm going to Agama, and in Agama, Swami Vivekananda is the alpha male. All the women are in love with him, and so on. But is that all? Am I just a Don Juan who just goes around fucking women? Or is there something else to it? No, because it happens, even in the non-tantric schools, that people are in love with their teacher, and women are also in love with their teacher if he's a man, and men are in love with their teacher if she's a woman as well. And it doesn't necessarily involve sex. So that's why I'm saying this. There were these women there, and it was a different environment because these women were interacting with Jesus in another way, even if, again, there was not about sex, but they would say, take a sweater, put a sweater on your shoulders, Jesus. Did you eat? We kept some warm food for you because you spoke too much today. No? The male disciples were not doing this because they didn't have this spirit of the woman, of the earth. No? I remember once in my young days when I was in the presence of a tantric guru, and one of the friends, one of the men in the group, he said, if there is one reason for which I'm sad that I'm not a woman, is that I cannot have sex with this guy 
like a male disciple, I can be friend with him. But I know that if a woman becomes his partner, she will see some sides of this man, which I'll probably never see, no, as a man. So there is something special in the male-female interaction there, and these women being present in the group of Jesus, they were bringing something very different. There were no women in the primary group of disciples of Buddha. They were just men. And that's why I'm saying it makes a difference one way or the other. So we meditate on this because this provokes a lot of the thoughts about gender, gender equality, sexism, but you have to understand the difference which I was telling even to the Viras in those controversial lectures, you know. If I want to have a baby inside my belly, and that baby could be Milarepa or Jesus, I cannot. Whatever I do in this life, I cannot. So there are some things which are simply barred for me. Through the very fact that I am a man, I can do some things. If we are about to lift a hundred kilos, Probably no woman in this room can lift a hundred kilos, but I can. And most of the men in this room can lift, no, maybe not carry it for too long, but at least you can lift it. But the women in this room, they will not even be able to lift it one centimeter off the ground. So we are different biologically and in many other ways. Our brains are different. When you see a movie, it has been demonstrated scientifically by putting electrodes, that when you see the same movie, men react to some scenes and women react to other scenes. The brain of men and women is different and reacts to different stimuli, even visual stimuli. And thus, I could continue with this, but it's a logical and elementary thing that we as men and women are not equal. We are complementary. We are equal in the meaning of complementary, like the two sides of a coin. You cannot have the heads without the tails on a coin, you know, they have to be there, both of them. So, we are complementary, and the male and the feminine are yin and yang, and they are united forever in this universe, and inseparable. But in a spiritual community, you see that, for example, men behave in a certain way, and women behave in another way. So we are given here hints that these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Like, they brought food, they brought money, they brought clothes, they brought, a, or they were going around and obtaining for them. I'm not saying all of them were rich, but they, maybe Mary Magdalene was going to the nearest visit village and said, hey guys, I'm going to pass by in half an hour here with Jesus and 12 other hippies, and they don't have a penny, these guys. So she was knocking at the doors and says, can somebody donate some bread? Can somebody donate some hummus? Can somebody donate some this? Or does anybody have an extra sweater because Andrew has lost his uh, shirt? His shirt became broken, so one of the apostles of Jesus has no coat, so does any one of you have some old shirt that would like to donate for the cause? You know, women were doing this. So women were ensuring precisely this maternal, earthy presence 
for which they are talented, they are made for it, they can do it. Does this mean that a woman cannot sit and meditate when Jesus... Of course they can. It's not either or. It's together. It goes together. It's a logical congruence there. So, anyhow, I'm not going to insist because it's late. Uh, Jesus, while this is happening, there is a large crowd and Jesus is giving them the famous parable of the sower, but that I will do and in our next satsang. So, we have been described this strange new environment of Jesus. Women were there, they were taking care material of their brothers, they were the sisters, and they were taking care of the brothers. Of course the brothers were like in those days, 2000 years ago, women were not going out, not chaperoned, or not accompanied. Only the knights, the Christian knights, took the vow to defend the women, the damsels in distress, the widows, the poor, and the elderly, and the children. Because 2,000 years ago, if a woman from Jerusalem said, Oh, you know what? It's too hot in Jerusalem. I'm going to Damascus. She would get on her horse, mule, camel, and go to Damascus. Not more than five kilometers would go before she would be taken off her camel, raped, robbed, and maybe murdered. Like, you know, the fact that a woman can go unaccompanied on a street, that's in the 21st century, you know, it's a fruit of civilization, you know. But even today there are places where some of you women would not go. There are places where I can swear that you would not go, no? alone, like without being chaperoned or accompanied. No? We all know that. No? And thus, um, in those days, the women were taking of their brothers, and their brothers were taking care of their sisters. These women were in a protected environment with a great teacher, accompanied by strong, twelve able men, who are the apostles. Occasionally there were tens, and maybe hundreds of men there, so there was a gathering. There was a gathering, and in this gathering Jesus accepted women if they wanted to listen to the teachings, and if they wanted to participate to this, Jesus said, so be it. Remember, it was not without opposition. Even Peter, one of his most important disciples, objected to it. Even Peter challenged it, and he said, why do you allow, when you speak such things, why do you allow Mary Magdalene, for example, to be here? And then Jesus gave that beautiful answer, in which he basically said, wait a second, Mary Magdalene is a woman who has surpassed her feminine limitations, and she's a woman who is a spiritual practitioner, you know, she is having... Other, like Mary Magdalene was not thinking about making babies and doing this and doing that. But today some people say, oh, but Jesus fucked Mary Magdalene and they had a child and it went to France or to Spain. It's not absolutely 100% impossible. I personally don't think that it has happened that way because the evidence is absolutely ridiculous in favor of this. Uh, hypothesis, it's not 100% impossible, and if it would have happened, 
it doesn't diminish my respect for Jesus, my love for Jesus in any way whatsoever. Because if Jesus has chosen to do this, then it means that there was a meaning to this to happen. It's not because uh, Mary Magdalene was too sexy and Jesus couldn't hold his penis in his trousers. And eventually one day he broke down and he says, Mary, take off your robe. I have to party you. I'm having wet dreams about you all night long and I can't take it anymore. No, it was not that Jesus was a, a horny animal and he couldn't, you know. So if he would have taken this decision, there would be something. I personally don't think it's true. I think it's just propaganda to defame Jesus, to decrease his stature. Because I think that for Jesus everything was happening in the higher chakras already, especially given the formidable mission that he had. Now he knew he would die quickly and he will not be around to be a father and to live the life of a householder and all that thing. And therefore there were women in the group and it's interesting for you to think about the dynamics of the group how were those women, how much spiritual they were, how were they behaving, what were they doing in the daily life supporting the community, how were the men looking upon them and how were they accepted or not accepted by some men being more open and some men being more macho and uh, old-fashioned. And thus, it's an interesting picture which is given here. Also this thing that those women are described as women that have been purified, healed, and exorcised of all sorts of demonic or evil influences from them. Are those evil influences referring to epileptic seizures and similar things? Or are they referring to menstruation itself? Or are they referring to other psychological or mental things which were considered unacceptable in those days and of a demonic origin? We don't know. This is to be meditated upon to understand. And if you want to take like this, then you should study the life of a Christian saying, like how did Teresa of Avila live her life? How did other female saints, especially in Christianity, where they followed in the footsteps of the great women of yore, how were they behaving, what was their psychology, how much drama did they make, what kind of women were they, and all the rest of the things. That, of course, they were, most of them, not involved into sexual uh, exchanges. But some of them were. There is this uh, Italian saint, I forgot her name, Saint Julia or something like this. There is a movie, an Italian movie about this female saint who was the wife of some guy. She was from a family and she was caught in some of these Italian incredible stupid feuds and so on. And uh, then she became a saint, you know. So even watching that movie is like, okay, what makes an Italian woman in the 12th century a saint? By the way, like Francis of Assisi and many others, like Saint Anthony and so on, she was from that wave of saints which came to the world in the 11th, 12th century. Again, it's again, there were some periods of one, two, three hundred years 
which had maximums of saints and enlightened beings, and then one, two, three, four hundred years where not much happened spiritually, and then again a century or two of reforms and changes in humanity, and again some placid centuries where not much has happened. So it's interesting to preserve that thought as well. I think it's enough for tonight. It's actually a bit too late. I apologize because I came late and I kept, kept you late. But I wanted to not uh, keep it short again. Uh, so with this, I conclude. Thank you all for joining and having the patience to listen to all these uh, spiritual considerations. If you have questions from all these things, you are always welcome to bring them up in the Q&A sessions on Tuesday. And otherwise, see you in the events here in Agama in the coming days and weeks. With this, we have finished for tonight.